welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real-life bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Very nice to be here. I did live in L.A. for five years. Um, and even though I was always west of here, um, this was my favorite bookstore, so it's nice to come back. Um, there was um, a time, there was a writer, Leonard Michaels, who I admired a great deal. Um, and he came out with a collection of his, it was excerpts from his diaries. It was called Time Out of Mind. And uh, I was impatient to get it. Um, and was looking for it, and the only place that carried it was Skylight. And I remember driving all the way across town to pick it up. Um, it was such a thrill. So it remains a thrill to be here. Um, I'll read from The Betrayers. I'll set it up a little bit. Um, I won't give away anything that isn't already given away on the back of the book. Um, so the premise behind it is that there are two men who meet, who haven't seen each other in 40 years. Uh, one is a man named Baruch Kotler, um, who is an Israeli politician now, but used to be a, uh, a refusenik, um, a famous uh, Jewish Zionist who wasn't allowed to go to Israel and instead ended up going to prison. Um, and the other man is a man named Chaim Tankalevich, um, who was his roommate and ostensible friend, who was in fact the person who denounced him to the KGB. Um, and what happens is, in this book, it's uh, the year is 2013, and we can talk about why it's 2013 and not 2014 after. Um, but they're in Crimea, in Yalta, and uh, Kotler um, has gotten into a dispute, a disagreement with the uh, current Israeli government. They want to pull out from a West Bank settlement, uh, a major pullout, a unilateral pullout, and he opposes this. He says it's a bad idea. And because he's such an influential politician, um, they try to um, convince him and persuade him to change his mind um, to the point where he's, he's called by a man who presents him with uh, sort of a, a bargain. Um, and essentially it's blackmail. Um, and Kotler turns it down. And he says, I, I'm not going to do it. And he knows basically what he's being threatened with and in fact it's exactly what he expected and the next morning photographs are leaked of him and his young mistress who's his aide all over uh, the newspapers the front pages of all the Israeli newspapers and what he decides to do is to get out of the um, sort of the heat he goes with his mistress Leora to Yalta to Crimea he has fond memories of it and leaves behind a wife um, and leaves behind uh, two kids a teenage daughter and a teenage son who is serving in, in the Israeli army and in fact will be called upon to uh, participate in this uh, evacuation which he opposes to for different reasons. Um, and we will pick up uh, the reading at a moment where um, Kotler and Leora have now arrived in Yalta settled in and their hotel reservation was lost and they have to take a, um, a room in a private home um, and so they've set they've 
taken a room in a private home. They know one thing about the owners of the home. Um, they meet the wife, and she kind of identifies them as Jewish and says that her husband is Jewish and plays on Kotler's sympathies. And even though he's supposed to stay anonymous, he, uh, he kind of... Um, makes this decision for sort of sympathetic, nostalgic reasons that he's going to stay at this woman's house. Ill-advised, his, his mistress believes. So they've moved in, and they're coming back after having dinner, and they're coming back to the house. And the scene that I'm going to read is Kotler um, now decides it's time to call home. He calls his teenage daughter, um, and I'll read from there uh, to the end of the chapter. Can everybody hear me? That's one question. Okay, good. So here we go. He walked away from the house and stood in the middle of the patch of grass. It was the best he could manage under the circumstances. A father calls his young daughter to confess a sin of the flesh. Such a call should be placed from the highest mountaintop or bobbing in the middle of the ocean as a speck on a dark stage reduced by biblical vastness, a conversation that, God forbid, none but God should overhear. Three practice swipes of his finger across the screen, a sequence of tiny movements so routine as to be almost unconscious, and Kotler was looking at Daphne's name and phone number. He tapped the screen, and the little glass rectangle beamed its signal. Thus were such daunting actions undertaken now, with a few twitches of a fingertip. Nothing like the old mindful ceremony of writing a letter, bent at the kitchen table, or in the solitude of a prison cell. Not even like the experience of the telephone booth, with the solid, goading, reproachful machine. Still, ceremony or no, the consequences remain the same. You made decisions, and sooner or later, you were called to account. Kotler listened to the beseeching sound of the ringtone. He knew how the technology worked. At the other end, his name would appear, and Daphne would know who was calling. It was past 11.30 at night in Yalta, the same time as Jerusalem. Daphne often spoke on the phone with her friends at this hour, or later. He and Miriam had occasionally scolded her for it, though not with any conviction. She was a good girl, a conscientious student. By the standards of a modern 18-year-old, she could not even be called rebellious. Miriam would have liked her to be more devout, but given that Kotler's own level of religious devotion left a lot to be desired, there was only so much Miriam could legitimately expect. Within a family, there were any number of possible configurations, alliances, and affinities. None set in stone all open for renegotiation unto the grave. But for them, things had assumed a fairly standard alignment. The son took after the mother, the daughter after the father. What enabled Miriam to wholeheartedly embrace God and his strictures she had passed on to Benzion. And whatever independence, whatever unruliness of spirit Kotler possessed had been imbibed or inherited by his daughter. Even if angry with him, her way, like his, would be to confront not to evade. Where are you? He heard his daughter say in a parental tone. A quiet place, Kotler replied. Another secret, Daphne said acerbically. I've been calling you. I know, Daphne, Kotler said. I would have liked to call you sooner, but it wasn't possible. 
He heard the rustling that implied his daughter was in motion. Where are you, he asked. Home. More rustling, then it stopped. Is your mother there? You didn't call to speak to her, did you? No, I called to speak to you. Rabbi Gedalia is here. He's with her in the other room. They know I'm talking to you. How is she? How do you think? You heard her, Papa. She didn't deserve it. You're right, she didn't. But you did it anyway. Daphna, those are two separate things. The first is not something for a father and daughter to discuss. As for the second, you'll have to believe me that I had no choice. I don't want to talk with you about sex either, but I'm not a child and I'm not naive. And don't forget we live in Jerusalem, the most sex-crazed place in the world, where half the people wear wool sacks to keep from having sex with everyone else. So you didn't wear a wool sack and you surrendered to your desires. Your desires, the words spoken boldly and neutrally, as if to rise above her disgust at the squalidness of her father's passions. I won't even say her name. It makes me sick to think of all the times she was in our house pretending to be loyal and respectful, pretending to be my friend. She should have had some shame, but it doesn't matter now, does it? What do you want me to say, Daphna? Are you planning to marry her? I don't know my plans. Not about that, not about other things. I don't understand. If you don't even know your plans, why did you allow this entire mess to happen? As I said, Daphne, I had no choice. On the other end of the line, his daughter fell silent, a simmering, frustrated silence. Kotler imagined her in her room, sitting cross-legged on the bed, glaring at the wall with her dark, intelligent eyes. What could be said about a father's love for his children? You loved them entire. You loved even their anger at you. For what was this anger, if not a frustration, maddeningly entangled with love? Cotler waited for Daphne to speak again. She was in her room in the familiar space. He could imagine her, but she couldn't have imagined him. At that moment, he could hardly have imagined himself. In the distance was the bold black silhouette of the Crimean mountains set against the moonlit sky. There was the quiet road, raked occasionally by the headlights of a passing car. There were the low-slung houses, even in the darkness, haphazard and needy, making their emotional appeal. And in front of him was the bright window pane, offering a view of the conventional tedium of his landlord's lives. He saw Svetlana rise from her seat and cross the room, carrying a folded newspaper in her hand. She stopped and said something over her shoulder to someone who wasn't visible to Kotler. The Jewish husband, Kotler assumed, returned from his communal duties. When you say you had no choice, Daphna finally said, what exactly are you talking about? I don't understand. What exactly didn't you have a choice about? Blackmail, Daphna Kotler said. Blackmail? Yes, I still believe in the policy that one doesn't negotiate with terrorists. What do these terrorists want? It shouldn't matter what they want. Whatever they want is what you cannot allow them to have. But what do they want? My silence. And what do they promise you for your silence? Their silence. Their silence about you and her. I didn't bother to ask. But that's what it was. That's what it turned out to be. And you didn't understand that's what they were threatening you with. I understood well enough. You understood and still you let them do it, Daphne nearly shouted. Didn't you know what it would do to us? Yes, Daphne, I knew, but one thing has nothing to do with the other. There are matters of principle where you cannot compromise, under any circumstances. If I'd compromised, it would have been worse. 
far worse for all of us, for our country, and for our family, which is part of our country. But who cares about the country if it destroys our family? The country doesn't care. All you need to do is read the newspapers to see how the people in this country care about us, to hear the disgusting things they're saying on television. Have you seen the television where you are? No. Have you called Benzion? Not yet. He won't say a word about it, but imagine what it's like for him now. Did you think about that? He has to face it all. The army offered him a leave. He should have taken it. I told him to take it, but he wouldn't. Daphnala, this will pass. You have to believe me, I speak, unfortunately, from great experience. I know about your experience, Papa. Everybody knows. You sacrificed and sacrificed for this country, but they still ridicule you. They ridicule you because of your sacrifices. So what good is it? Let somebody else sacrifice for a change. And if nobody else wants to, then who are you sacrificing for? One sacrificed for one's people as one sacrificed for one's children. One did it because one felt that one knew better than they did. That one saw in them what they failed to see in themselves. One kept faith as God kept faith with the Israelites the stubborn, stiff-necked people, complaining even at the moment of their redemption, turning their backs, endlessly squabbling, quick to forget signs and wonders. One identified with them, even at their lowest, because otherwise one would be lost. He would be lost, desolate. A man needed to belong to something greater than himself. But the call ended with Kotler having conveyed none of this. It was late now, approaching midnight. Too late, Kotler thought, to call Benzion. Besides, he still wasn't fully accustomed to the idea that a soldier on active duty could be telephoned. On this subject, despite his having lived more than two decades in Israel, his frame of reference was 70 years out of date, rooted in childhood and his father's stories of the Eastern Front. These stories, supported by a few photographs and a packet of yellowed field post, folded into triangles and bearing the censor's seals were deeply encoded in Kotler's psyche. A movement in the window drew his eye, and Kotler turned from the black absorption of the mountains. Faster than a thought, his knees buckled, responding to an overwhelming impulse to drop to the ground, to get out of sight. Kotler caught himself and stood rigidly, his knees still slightly and comically bent. Blood battered his heart as if to dislodge it. The fear was one he'd not known in untold years. Framed in the window was a man, Svetlana's husband, arrested by some worry or introspection. His profile presented to Kotler. Kotler's thoughts swirled, sense convoluted with nonsense. He knew that the man could not see him, but he feared the man could see him. He knew the year was 2013 and that the Soviet Union no longer existed, but he felt the cold menace of the KGB, sensed the nearness of his old tormentors, he knew he was an Israeli citizen, a husband and father, a dissident champion, but he felt isolated and vulnerable, helpless to stave off the horror. In the window, the man blinked his eyes and wearily ran his hand through his white hair. He cleared his throat, opened his mouth to call out to his wife, squinted as he listened for her reply, and then shuffled from the room. So, who is that man? Uh, anyway, um, so that's um, 
the moment, as you can tell, where Kotler sees Tankalevich. Um, the book takes off from there and ultimately leads to the confrontation between the two of them. It also departs for a good section to show the world through Tankalevich's eyes, his life um, in Ukraine, in Crimea, um, and what it's like to be a Jew in Crimea, or at least what it was like in 2013. Um, as I was saying, the year is 2013. My original designs for the book were a little different. Um, I'd hoped that the book would come out and that the year it was set in, the time it was set in, would, would be as close as possible to its publication date. So I'd intended for it to come out in, you know, September and that it would be set in August of 2014. But then a lot of things changed. Um, and it became very clear that it was entirely implausible for a guy like Kotler and his young mistress to go to Yalta in the summer of 2014. is ridiculous. Um, and this is the sort of problem that, I, you know, that I, I was afraid of all along in trying to write a book that was intended to be absolutely current, up to date. Um, about, you know, politics. Um, and I thought that things in Israel would, would be the, the things that would derail my little project, um, never anticipating that it was Ukraine, that it would be Ukraine, that such a thing was possible. Um, and so, you know, it was a fascinating thing to live through, watching everything unfold and thinking, you know, with my sort of cynical, Soviet-infused logic, that nothing would change, and this has been the same all along, and tried to write as I went, you know, kind of to account for it. There's a moment where Svetlana, they have two daughters who are in Tankalevich, saying that uh, I probably did this around December or January, and wrote that the daughters, one of the daughters had gone to Kiev to the Maidan to be part of the revolution. Um, but of course, it all came to nothing, as it always comes to nothing. And I sent that off to the copy, you know, to, to be typeset. And that obviously is not what happened. So the only thing to do was to roll the clock back to 2013. Um, so that's give you some, some frame of reference for the book. Um, if anybody has anything they'd like to ask, happy to answer questions. Um, yes, go, please go ahead. Theater, theater occurring, especially with Syria and um, ISIL. Do you think that that something could happen that might resemble the Cold War, Cold War in terms of? Um, but what do you think? Yeah. Had, since you're sitting right on it, how would you predict? You know, I remember reading things by people who were considered well-informed, including David Remnick in the New Yorker, at a time saying, "Well, this whole Crimea thing." Yes, we understand how that could happen, but they would never go into eastern Ukraine. They would never expand. Putin would never expand that way into eastern Ukraine. And it seemed like a reasonable assumption to make at the time. Because Crimea, and if you read the book, and having traveled there, it was a very Russian place, a very even Soviet place. Um, I didn't hear a word of Ukrainian spoken. Um, and during the time of this you know, revolution in uh, the rest of Ukraine, especially in the West, where they were pour, you know, pulling down Lenin's all over Ukraine, 
this is what completely offended and infuriated people in Crimea, where the Lenins are just standing everywhere. So you could see that there was a lot of, um, uh, I think, sympathy um, between Crimea and Russia. So you, everybody believed, like, okay, that could work. They could take it. Even if, there were, even if there had been an open and legitimate vote, I think it would have gone that way, with a different margin. Eastern Ukraine? Nobody thought that, you know, that the Russians would do what they've done. You know, I'm from Latvia. I'm from the Baltics. And does it seem paranoid that the Baltics are now really anxious that Putin will expand out, even though they're part of NATO? You'd like to believe it is. Um, but I don't think anybody believed that he would do what he did in eastern Ukraine. So I really don't know what to say. I mean, historically speaking, what, you know, what's happening right now is just a recapitulation of things that have happened over the last hundred years. Like the Russian Empire used to extend you know, into Poland. And then there was the First World War. And you know, Trotsky was despised by a lot of people. And Lenin for the Brest Treaty, the Treaty at Brest, where they gave up a lot of their empire, Poland and um, parts of Ukraine. And part of what Stalin wanted back and got back in, in, in his pact with Hitler were those territories, right? And then after the Second World War, part of what they wanted, part of the Yalta Conference, right? The other thing that Yalta is known for was Stalin staking claim to all these imperial Russian territories that he wanted, that sphere of influence. And then the Soviet Union collapses and they lose them again. Is there a big surprise that they want them back? It's the same sort of territorial grab that we've been seeing. Yes. Yeah. Where they will fall out in that theater. That's what confuses me. I see what's happening in that theater yeah. fully. Yeah. But what concerns me is how he injects himself into the Middle East theater. Well, the Russians have had a massive presence in Syria. In fact, it was the last Middle Eastern country where they still had a presence. So I think they wanted to retain that. And he, and he feels, you know, I can't speak for Putin, but it looks like now that he seems like the wisest man on the international stage. Right? Where now Obama is siding with Assad in a way, right? Of course. Of course. And Putin basically, you know, can present himself as I told you so. You were trying to side with these uh, Muslim radicals. At least we have a good strong man here who we can trust and who we know. Is he that right or are his advisors that bright? Putin, I don't know. I think he's pretty I think it's not it's not even a question of being bright. He's He's following a template that I think is, a, is a, an established Russian template that's not just Putin. The reason that the Russians respect him is because he shows strength and pride in the Russian nation, which they felt that they'd lost uh, after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, I think that has a lot to do with it. It's, you know, it's pretty simplistic, but so is a lot of international politics. I'm not. There's no guarantee that I'm right about any of this. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I may speak with some level of, of, of persuasiveness. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, those three Baltic states are NATO. I said last night that we will send troops if the United States NATO country. Yeah, well, according to the treaty, they're supposed to. Like, if, if Russia invades NATO, uh, I mean, Estonia, NATO is supposed to protect them. That includes 
U.S. troops and everybody else. Um, so, if they if they honor those treaties, he probably was hurting because Syria is such, a, is such an important trade partner for both Iran and Russia. He's probably been hurting badly economically because of what's been happening. Putin, you mean? Syria, yes. So he yeah. thought he'd grab Ukraine and they were going to deal with the West. Yeah, I mean, it's also a sphere of influence. I, I understand. I understand his position. I mean, when NATO comes to your border all along, um, I, I don't, I don't think they would, they would embrace that or welcome it or be anything but threatened by it. And it also doesn't. It makes him look weak. It makes him look weak to his electorate, um, and he knows he can't look weak, especially to you know, the average Russian, which is his, his support. I'm sure he believes it too. I understand that. A lot of Russians believe it. My parents believe it. My aunt believes it. You know. They believe. They believe that Putin's right. They believe that he's right. That they should have those places back. Yeah, that he that he shows strength and that you can't trust, you know, these fascisty people in 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 Western Ukraine and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean. Russian television is, is controlled by the state for the most part, and people who watch television get a very particular slant on what's going on, very pro-Russian slant. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. I don't know. I don't. Well, you you hope not. Um, so. Not to speak beyond my level of expertise, I mean, one thing about the book is what it, I'd aspire to do is to talk a little bit about, in the book, what was peculiar about Ukraine. And what was, what was surprising about Ukraine wasn't that people were disenchanted, because they'd been disenchanted for a long time. And if you read the book, you see what life was like for the ordinary person in, in Crimea. But it's that that there was this rising, that something actually changed. Um, so that's what attracted me to Ukraine. It was this broken place um, and a place where Jews had lived for a long time and where the last remnants of Ashkenazi Jewry um, are, and you can see it coming to an end, the thousand-year history of what I think a lot of people identify as Jewish, right? Like everybody in America, basically, you know, we have Persian Jews, but for the most part, traditionally, it's, these are Russian Jews, right? The Jews in this country are basically Russian Jews who come from this place and from a culture that had, you know, been very vibrant for about a thousand years. And if you go to those lands now, you just see the end of it. You see the end of a thousand year cycle. And it's quite... So because people have left. People have left. People have emigrated for the most part. And a lot of these people have left some to the United States and North America, but for the most part, to Israel. I mean, so that's where they've made their biggest impact and changed that country. Um, so the book treats these two things. The end of, um, you know, Russian Jewry in, the end of Jewry in Europe, really, because they're the last major um, Russian, I mean, Jewish population. We could talk about France, but it's a little different. Um, and then the country that they've transformed, which is Israel. And since People seem to care a great deal about Israel, who are not Jewish or Russian. Um, the impact they've had on that country has had a tremendous impact on what's going to happen with anything in the Middle East. They have tremendous political sway. 
so that was interesting to me, right? And what, the, how they've changed that country for better, and depending on your politics, for worse. Um, they've, they are Kotler's a, a fairly good representative um, of of Russian Jews, which is, even though he was an, uh, a civil rights warrior, right? Um, by the time he comes to Israel, he takes uh, what you would call a, a rightist, hawkish position, as most uh, Russian Jews have taken in that country. Um, and so this is a book about people like that. Um, you know, occasionally in some of the reviews, there's been you know, criticism of talking about, well, where's the Palestinian perspective, for instance? Um, to be representative of who these people are, there is no Palestine. I mean, it's just not there. Right. Um, so, are his politics my politics? Not exactly. Um, but is his uh, perspective, um, which I think is quite influential and representative of a, of a large constituency, is it accurate? I would hope so. And uh, is it enough to sustain people's interest? I would hope so as well. And to illuminate something about what's happening in that part of the world. I live in Toronto. Yes. Um, I'm not working on my next novel. I, ha I mean, I have an idea. I think I'm. I think I've come to the end of my, you know, Russian Jewish thing. I, I know that much. I've written three books about it, um, and feel like I don't really have much more to say about it. So I'm thinking in other terms, um, but I haven't started yet. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm si uh, we'll, we'll go on, but yes, go on. But uh, there was the first wave of Jews that came from Europe. Yes. And then there's been a big wave from actually the Soviet Union Jews. Correct, yes. shifted Israel severely when that second wave came. Yeah, yeah, this, this, this is what I mean, yeah. So after 1991, you had a million people from the Soviet Union who were Jews or ostensibly Jews. It was hard to, even some people, it's like a grandmother, is, do we prove this? But you had a, a, a million plus people absorbed into a country of six million people. Imagine that. Imagine if the United States, which is a country of 300 million people, absorbed another fifth of its population or sixth of its population. How's my math? My math is brutal. It's like 50 million people or something all of a sudden showed up. We have an imagination Yes. <laughs> right? It, imagine that. And people of a very particular um, mentality and, and psychology. And they changed the country a lot. I think in, in, in a, f a few ways. One, um, I'll generalize, but these were educated people for the most part. And you, I think you can attribute to what's happened to the Israeli economy in no small part to all these people showing up. So the tech boom in Israel, again, was in no small part um, a creation of all these mathematicians and physicists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who came from the former Soviet Union. Um, they also, I think Israel has always wanted to bring as many Jews in for um, demographic reasons. They want a Jewish majority. And that was really the last place where you had this large community of people that would come they would love six million American Jews to come, but what are the odds of six million American Jews moving to Israel? It's probably not very good. Life is nice here. 
so they, there was this demographic element. There was this, I think, um, you know, uh, commercial sort of uh, industrial thing, but also politically. Um, their politics are to the right. They're to the right, you know, in, Amer in America too. Um, Soviet, you know, post-Soviet Jews are Republicans. I can say that pretty crudely. And so hopes of a peace settlement, for instance, in the sort of thing that, you know, people on the left would like, much harder to accomplish uh, because of this influx of people who, again, I, I understand it too, um, have been a minority, have been a persecuted minority for a long time, and they come to this country and they feel strength. And why should we uh, capitulate? Why should we give things up? It's ours. Who are these people? Um, they hate us anyway. Why are we going to show weakness? No. And that's been part of the change. I don't know if in a generation the, the descendants of these people will still feel the same way. It's hard to say. But in the near term, in the last 20 years, that's certainly been part of it. You look at somebody like... Um, Avigdor Lieberman, um, who's the uh, the foreign minister, he's fairly representative of of Soviet Jews, right? Very strong kind of hawkish position. Yes. Um, can you speak about the benefits you think of political engagement through Yeah, the, the benefits of, of, of uh, engagement through fiction, writing a, a book like this. My thoughts on it. Um, I, I just felt that it was a necessary thing, for me anyway. Um, I think about you know, some of this politics. Um, it feels important to me. Um, I think it's important to a lot of people, as you, know, as you see sometimes, if there's a war, whether it's in Ukraine or Israel, um, now we talk about social media and people like basically um, despising each other on Facebook and these, these horrible, you know, long rants that people... Anyway, that's not what I want to do. But as a, as a writer, as a fiction writer, as a novelist, I feel like what I should do is this. Um, and I've written books that were much more intimate, you know, centered on my family, for instance. But I think at a certain point, um, for me, anyway, I can't speak for all writers, but if you feel strongly about these things, I think you should try to, you know, write a book about it. Put yourself out there. Um, and with the hope of creating a novel um, that becomes part of the conversation, um, as books have done in the past, and as books, you know, that I admire have done in the past. I mean, Examples um, that I often bring up are Darkness at Noon um, by, by Kessler. Is it, a, is it great literature? I mean, it's, it's certainly endured, but he was brave at the time to write about a, you know, a very critical book about the Soviet system at a time during the Second World War, for instance. Very brave. Um, I, I'm a big admirer of, of, uh, of J.M. Kotsea. I mean, Disgrace, I think, is in its own way a very political book. And so I think there's a certain... Disgrace, um, it's, it's right after the, uh, the end of the apartheid regime from the perspective of a white professor. Um, and it has a lot to do with um, 
you know, the relations between blacks and whites in South Africa um, and some other things besides. But he, you know, he really put himself out there and some people and, and made some people very angry. But I think we need, I think it needs to be done. Um, and it's not like you can say that all literature should be like this or all literature should be like that. But I think there's a place for this. Um, and I think it's important. For me, it felt important anyway. No? Anything else? We'll take one more. So I say we'll take one more. Maybe one will pop up. Okay, great. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Very Beautiful 100%. You can check them out at vb100.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.